This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy by Ben Davis. Art critic Ben Davis tries to make sense of our extreme present as an emerging afterculture, a culture that is being radically reshaped by cataclysmic events. You can find Art in the Afterculture at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. US troops formally withdrew from Iraq in 2011, but three years later, the Iraqi state they left behind nearly disintegrated when it had to confront a new challenge. CBS News spoke about the dramatic rise of ISIS as if America was the group's main victim. Islamic militants seized control of Mosul, Iraq's second largest city with one and a half million people. The group had already taken the cities of Fallujah and Ramadi in the west. U.S. forces spent nearly a decade fighting for control of those cities before withdrawing two and a half years ago. In Mosul today, we saw sporadic gunfire and burning military vehicles. The insurgents seized police stations, banks, and government buildings. Many Iraqi soldiers dropped their weapons and vanished. Thousands of families are now fleeing the city. Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki ordered a state of emergency and the U.S. State Department called the situation extremely serious. The U.S. and its Iraqi allies eventually broke the power of ISIS in cities like Mosul. But their victory came at a horrifying cost for Iraqi civilians. A very different kind of challenge to the Iraqi system has taken shape in the last few years. The protest movement that erupted in 2019 has braved violent repression to demand a more honest, democratic and egalitarian political order. Our guest today is Dina Khoury. She's an historian of the Middle East and her books include Iraq in Wartime. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part is also available on the website for Jacobin Radio. What factors lay behind the sudden collapse of the Iraqi state and army in the areas where ISIS took control? You know, the rise of ISIS seems quite sudden to observers and from the outside, but in many respects, the rise of ISIS, perhaps not in the form that it appeared in, had its its antecedents. The areas that ISIS took control of are marginal areas, areas neglected by the state, they're Sunni areas. Uh, think, Think of these areas as sort of the frontiers of state control, both of Iraqi state control and by 2011 with the uprising in Syria, outside of Syria's state control. And Mosul was neglected. Uh, There's no investments in Mosul, predominantly because it was regarded as a Sunni area. And so these were areas that were sort of marginal in terms of allocation of resources, in terms of state control in Iraq. And I think the inability of the central government to deal with Sunni demands uh, in, in Fallujah, and in Anbar province in 2012-2013, led to a number of youths who migrated to Syria and joined ISIS uh, in Syria. 
because they saw that there was no hope of getting any uh, help from Baghdad or getting the attention of Baghdad. They had tried peacefully to do this because in 2012 and 2013, there were protests, in well-organized protests that were violently suppressed in, in Anbar and particularly in Fallujah. And these were violently repressed by the, by the Maliki government. As a result of the failure of the state to deal with this, that uh, a lot of the youth that had uh, led these protests migrated to to Syria and were attracted to ISIS. And ISIS also rose in a particular regional and national uh, context, a corrupt pro-Iranian regime in Iraq that is openly sectarian, a corrupt and murderous regime in uh, Syria also supported by Iran, and a radicalization of the Sunnis in both Syria and Iraq, a radicalization supported by the Gulf states and also by Turkey. And so it's in this context that we need to see the rise of ISIS. Also, the Maliki government had used its control of the ministries of interior and defense, i.e. Dawah's control, of the ministries of interior and defense to fill the ranks of the army and the security services with supporters that had very little training and had openly sectarian uh, agendas so that the army and security services in Mosul really were unequipped to deal with ISIS and just left and fled when ISIS came. And so it's in this context that we see, we need to see the rise of ISIS, the failure of the Iraqi state, but also to answer for Sunni grievances, but also the radicalization of Sunni populations that took place through first Al-Qaeda, but then eventually uh, Islamic State. How did the managers of the Iraqi state and their allies respond to that challenge from ISIS when it crystallized in that period in both a political and a military sense? And how would you characterize the long-term consequences of that response for Iraq? The takeover of Mosul by ISIS came as a surprise to the government of Maliki. I think the um, quick disintegration of any government presence in the north, the swift taking over of territories, including Mosul, generated panic among the Shia population, as well as the government. The Shias continuously said that there's going to be a massacre by the Sunnis of the Shias. It's going to be to be a reenactment of Imam Hussein, of the killing by the Umayyads of Hussein, the son of Ali, Imam Ali, in the early uh, Islamic centuries. And so this is going to be another Karbala. And this is part of how it was talked about by the government and by wide swaths of the Shia population. So the Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who was the... Um, the premier religious authority of Shias issued a fatwa, a call from Najaf, from the holy city of Najaf, 
asking all Shiites to mobilize to fight and pick up arms to fight ISIS. And this uh, led to the formation by the Iraqi government of something called the Popular Mobilization Forces, Al-Hashd al-Shabi, or Hashd, as it's known in Arabic. And it becomes a state-sponsored umbrella organization composed approximately of 67 armed factions. Mostly, the majority of these were Shia Muslims, but it also included Sunni Muslims from the Anbar province, Christians, as well as Yazidi groups. So the popular mobilization force becomes the major force that is mobilized to fight ISIS in the north, and it represents the Iraqi state along with the highly trained counterinsurgency unit that was trained by the United States and certain sectors of the Iraqi army, in addition to a coalition of forces uh, at the head of which was the United States and also the Kurdish regional government's armies, primarily the Peshmergas, the militias of the Kurdish regional government, who were recruited and helped in the fight against ISIS. So between 2014 and 2016, Iraq and Mosul and the areas controlled by ISIS, as well as areas in Syria, because the Americans saw this as not an Iraqi thing only, an Iraqi fight that extended to Syria. So these coalition of forces uh, waged a war against ISIS and eventually defeated it by uh, uh, 2017 and did so through deploying mostly airstrikes so that we know that about 11,000 airstrikes were made against uh, ISIS, particularly in the Mosul area. And so by 2017, ISIS was defeated. During the final offensive against ISIS in Mosul, approximately 9,000 people were killed according to research by the Associated Press. A spokesman for the US military told AP that it was irresponsible to talk about civilians who were killed by US airstrikes. The US-led coalition has conducted nearly 14,000 strikes on Iraqi soil. We're now going to hear some clips from a report on Mosul after the defeat of ISIS by Franz van Katre. The airstrikes have completely destroyed western Mosul. Around 800,000 people have been displaced. Of those that have stayed, many are angry. One man agreed to talk to us. The Islamic State group killed some of his family members, but most of his anger is directed at the Iraqi army. We've masked his identity to protect him. Do you really think these women and children were members of the Islamic State group? I think it was clear who was from IS and who wasn't. The city didn't deserve this. We're talking about half of the city completely destroyed. They could have at least got the civilians out. They could have contacted us to help liberate the city. There would have been a lot less destruction. 
They lied to us. I swear to God, they lied to us. They told us they had a big army, soldiers, anti-terrorist forces, and they couldn't take back half the city. They just used airstrikes. They spent billions on their army, and they took back the city by destroying it. Couldn't they have just retaken it using soldiers? Did they have to bomb us and kill everyone? Another man from Mosul explained how difficult it was to stay alive in the struggle between ISIS and its opponents. On one side, if the Islamic State fighters saw you running away, they would decapitate you. On the other side, if the army saw you, they'd shoot you. Everyone had to have a beard, and if the soldiers saw you with a beard, they shot you. If the army did not see a woman or a child with you, you were dead. Otherwise, you had a bit more of a chance. For, for the United States, as well as for the Iraqi government, the problem was regarded primarily as a military problem, i.e. the politics that had preceded it, i.e. why is it that these ISIS came to power, was not discussed at all. ISIS was this evil force. People who supported it were evil people. And the only solution to get rid of ISIS was not a political solution. In fact, it's a military solution. And as a result, because it was viewed as a military solution, there was very little attempt to deal with the causes that brought about the support, Sunni support for ISIS. So because of that, the post-ISIS landscape in Iraq has not been very promising. What the result was, there is a further militarization of Iraqi society and politics. So for example, the popular mobilization forces remain powerful players in Iraqi politics. They have now become a political bloc that ensures that their interests are preserved. And they continue to be important in managing the areas that were retaken from ISIS. And ultimately, although they are a government force, they become a sort of another bloc, the political bloc with its own militia in Iraq, and they become they have remained powerful brokers in the reconstruction efforts that are taking place, such as they are taking place in the areas controlled uh, that were controlled by ISIS, Mosul, the Mosul Plains, what uh, Yazidi uh, and Christian areas. So the Iraqi state has never had a mo- monopoly of, on violence, as most states do, but it continues to be made up of an amalgam of political groupings that wield power through their militias and the popular mobilization forces now have come into the situation, into the political scene. So military solutions continue to be the only way that the Iraqi government, such as it is, continues to think of potential threats to its legitimacy, particularly from Sunni-dominating areas. The other result of this was the strengthening of the Kurdish territorial reach in disputed areas beyond the Kurdish government's um, undisputed territories, i.e. these areas were areas that were 
acquired back from the ISIS through the help of Kurdish peshmergas, Kurdish militias. And the Kurds are not willing to forego this very easily. So they these areas very easily, claiming them as part of their territories, for example, claiming that the Yazidis who inhabit these territories and other minorities are really Kurdish and they should be part of the Kurdish uh, regional government. And so this also helps in the further fragmentation, helps in the further fragmentation of the Iraqi territorial space into sort of cantons that are controlled by parties that are and militias. And the other thing that came out of the uh, defeat is is the sort of controversy, the lack of serious efforts at rebuilding the areas devastated by by the war against ISIS, although there has been a post-ISIS conference in, in Kuwait on that promised hundreds of millions of dollars for reconstruction of devastated areas. But as far as we know, this has brought nothing tangible as of yet. So the destruction brought by the ISIS occupation and by the bombing caused by the American and uh, Iraqi forces has not materialized. So these areas are even worse off than they were before uh, ISIS came to power. There are also now about a million internally displaced people in the post-ISIS Iraq, many of them in the Kurdish areas, but others still in the disputed territories in the on the Mosul plains. And of these, the most problematic has been those families who are accused of collaborating with ISIS or members of their family collaborating with ISIS. And so these are having very difficult time being reintegrated, refuse to go back because they're afraid of retribution. And the Iraqi government is not doing anything to settle them. To, to, to reassure them. In 2018, the rapper IMZ released his own take on Childish Gambino's This Is America. This is Iraq. Yeah. Cut us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. This is Iraq. Born in Scotland of Iraqi parents, INZ told CNN why he recorded the track. There's a lot of reasons for the countries that were involved to try to forget about it. And I don't think we should. A lot of lives were lost. There hasn't been justice for, for those families who have lost loved ones. To say that I don't have any right to speak about Iraq, I think is a bit ignorant. I represent quite a large portion of Iraqis who are in my situation, who live abroad and haven't been able to visit or have visited very little due to what's going on. Do you want to live in Iraq at some point? I've always uh, maintained that I would like to one day go back and see the places that my parents grew up in, you know, the stories that they tell us of. I just don't think now is the right time. It's not exactly stable. Uh, uh, You know, the country seems to be going backwards. 
as opposed to moving forward. What was the nature of the protest movement that emerged in 2019? And what features did it have in common with the protests that were unfolding more or less simultaneously in countries like Algeria, Sudan or Lebanon? Let me begin by answering the second part of your question, which is what do the protests of 2019 have in common with other protests that took place uh, at the same time in Algeria, Lebanon and, and Sudan? I think the, the, the first answer I can give you is that there, these are movements that are dominated by youths, by a generation of people who have felt abandoned by their governments, abandoned in the sense that their basic rights to education, to healthcare, to employment have eroded completely, in in part because of this sort of push that has dominated the political economies of much of the area, which is for privatization, neoliberal liberalization of the economies and the dismantling of the services of the state. And these are youths that are largely non-ideological in the sense that they don't belong to political parties that have clear ideological agendas. Their agenda is primarily for basic human rights. And these human rights are not understood only as political rights, which is in the liberal sense of the world, but really as also social rights. The right to education, their health care, jobs, safety and security from the uh, a predatory state uh, that basically oppresses them. And so that's the thing that it shares with other uprisings or protests uh, of that time. The other thing that it shares with these is what social scientists call the repertoires of the movement, i.e. the setting up of tents, the taking up of public squares, basically reclaiming the city spaces for organizing protests, which are predominantly peaceful protests. The following clip comes from a 2019 report by Mustafa Salim of the Washington Post on the role of Baghdad's Tahrir Square in the protest movement. The men and women on the streets in Baghdad across much of the south have become the largest grassroots movements in Iraq's modern history. Amid the violent crackdown, Tahrir Square has become the center of Baghdad protests and a template for the kind of society that the protesters say they want to live in. Hundreds of people have come together to provide the crowds with what they need. There's free food, free haircuts, tent after tent of volunteer medical workers, and so many cups of sugary black tea. In daylight hours, people come together to sweep the streets. At night, they light candles for their dead. It's certain songs that they espouse, certain uh, slogans that they pick up, certain popular figures, for example, the, the face of the Joker that we see in Iraqi, in the 2019 Iraqi um, 
protest is something they picked up from Chile, from the protesters in Chile. So this is a very savvy group of young people organizing through social media and and able to get around the restrictive apparatus of the state through their use of social media. And so they're really anti-party youth and also multi-class. This we see across these protests in the Arab world. But I think what distinguishes the Iraqi case is the particular context that Iraq Iraq's protests emerged under in 2019 um, and before that in protests in 2018 and as well and in 2015. I think the most important difference is that these protests are of a generation, by generation of Iraqis that were raised under late Ba'ath, but also the American occupation and the regime that the Americans brought in them. They were predominantly Shi'i, youths, Shi'i Iraqis, Shi'i Iraqis who refused to buy into the old politics, sectarian politics that had dominated the ideology and the political landscape of uh, Shi'i parties who came to power in their own name, i.e. we're here to protect you as Shi'is. We are here to make sure that you as a majority uh, have power and have resources. And these protesters were clearly anti-political parties that organized around clearly sectarian agendas. They just said, we do not, we reject the post-occupation order we want a new order. In fact, we need a national order that encompasses all Iraqis. So in that sense, they are different than other protesters in that they were trying very hard to create the sense of civic engagement that is as well an attempt at the restoration of an Iraqi nation, something that other protesters did not have to deal with, i.e. because they had a nation and it hadn't been fragmented and destroyed uh, as a nation. And they're anti-sectarian. And in that sense, they share some, they share quite a bit in their political agenda with the Lebanese protesters who were also quite anti-sectarian and protesting the domination of political parties organized around sect rather than uh, nation. We need to understand also these protests in Iraq as coming as a result of a complete failure of the state. I mean, there's a clear crisis of legitimacy that the Iraqi government experienced. And this is a crisis of legitimacy that became clear to the Iraqis as early as the 2011 and 12, but particularly Shia Iraqis. But it is in 2015 that the beginning of organized protests around non-sectarian agendas is seen in Iraq. And so there are protests that take place in 2015 in the midst of the Shia uh, fight against ISIS. And this is significant. Uh, 
because they are at this point clear that despite the fight against ISIS, which represents an existential threat to Shi'i dominance and Shi'is on the whole because of its sectarian agendas, we are protesting your corruption and we want a civic order that allows us to basically live reasonable lives that are safe and healthy and we need employment. And so by 2019, it's clear when the protests are now are drawing on larger swaths of the population, not only the southern parts with the 2015 protests only uh, covered, i.e. in the city of Basra. Now we have protests across various cities in Iraq, in Baghdad, in the south, in Basra, in Nasriya, all over central and southern Iraq, predominantly by Shia populations, although Christians and Sunnis expressed support for the protests. And the massiveness or the scale of the protests alerted to the, the government to the serious problem it was facing. And the response was quite violent, i.e. there were six in the in the first months of the uprising of the protests, some six hundred uh, Iraqis were killed by the state and about 20,000 injured. Three more protesters have been killed today as demonstrators continue their campaign for new elections and an end to corruption. This BBC News report from the beginning of 2020 documented the violent crackdown on the protests. By the time it was broadcast, nearly 500 people have been killed. They want a new prime minister and fresh elections, and they might just get their way but not without a fight. After a long standoff, the security forces are now coming down the off-ramp. It looks like they're just using tear gas for now. They're all so sick of Iran and the United States fighting their battles on Iraqi soil. Both be damned, they chant. Three more young protesters were killed today. More names for a crowded memorial wall. This revolution already has too many martyrs. The other thing that I'd like to stress about these protests is that they come as a result as well, not only of youths, although the youth in Iraq, particularly the unemployed youth, and who refuse to organize around political parties, they come about because Iraq, since 20, I would say, 2010s, begins organizing systematically. Iraqis begin organizing civil society uh, institutions and organizations. The women's movement organizes labor unions. The Iraqi Communist Party, which is which is quite small helps in the revival of these trade unions, but also trade unionists get training and support from labor organizations, international uh, labor organizations, including American labor organizations, on how to revive 
a what used to be a quite a, la- a strong labor union movement before the Ba'ath took over power. And these begin, or, uh, and they're also unions of students and unions of professional unions, students and teachers. And these become join in the protests and help sustain them. So, for example, doctors would go to the tents that were set up in, in Tahrir Square to help. Various unions would establish their own tents to support the protesters. So the protests go beyond the youth eventually and incorporate larger swaths of the Iraqi population. You refer there to the violence of the response from the authorities to the protests, but I suppose in a wider sense, how did the Iraqi state and government respond to the protest and to that crisis of legitimacy that you were alluding to there? I mean, the response was was mixed. On the one hand, the knee-jerk reaction was to respond by you know, violence. And it did so. The government did respond by violence. But then it had to curtail that violence and it had to moderate it for two reasons. The first was that the protesters for a while uh, were, uh, until January of 2020, the protests began in October 2019. Until January, February 2020, the protesters were protected by the Sadrist uh, movement, i.e. Muqtada Sadr played his mediating role as usual by saying to the government, you cannot, they have legitimate uh, demands, they are protesting corruption, we are going to protect them. So he set his followers down to the streets, basically, to protect the protesters against the violence of the state. And in doing so, he not only expanded the number, because he has a large following, number of protesters, but he also provided protection for the protests. So they were able to do this until January 2020, after which he withdrew his support after the United States killed the head of the Iranian um, uh, Al-Quds Brigade and the head of the... um, popular mobilization forces. And so then they withdrew their support saying that we do not want to weaken the Shia-dominated government and we cannot, uh, you know, and we're not supporting you because, and accused the protesters of being funded by the United States. But until then, they were protected. The second response was less violent, which is trying to co-opt the protesters, either by promising them the expansion of public sector jobs, which is something that it had promised to every protester at every protest before that. And the response of the protesters was, no, we're not, we're not buying into this. And second, once the protesters articulated a clearer agenda, i.e. by saying we need new elections, we need the, this, you know, uh, this government to resign, we need a, a reform of the electoral law, by promising them that it would do so. But they were able to do so only after they had 
clipped the wings of the protests, first because they were able to unleash the government forces once the Sadrists withdrew their support against them, and second, because the they had to appease the Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani and the Najaf clergy, who after the after the government had unleashed this violence against the protesters, said that you have to come to a compromise. In fact, that we support the demands of the protesters. There has to be a new government. And you cannot, you need to, rather than shoot the protesters, you need to reach a compromise with them. So it's this combination of these factors. And I think it made a huge difference that the um, religious establishment stood behind the protesters at some point in the uh, demonstrations. And they were, they were able, in fact, to eventually lead to the resignation of the prime minister and the promise of new elections as well as the reform of the electoral law. What has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the political situation in Iraq? Was it possible to maintain any form of effective social mobilisation during the pandemic? I think the pandemic played a critical role in also limiting the ability to mobilize in Iraq, although it didn't. I mean, even after the the pandemic, uh, the, the protests uh, petered out primarily through violence, but also because of the resignation of the government, as well as the devastation of the pandemic. I think the protests continued in other parts of Iraq, but the kind of gatherings, the massive gatherings, that took place before took the, its toll on the on the protesters in terms of being the super spreader meetings for for COVID and the uh, because of the devastation of the uh, medical infrastructure in Iraq after two thousand and and three and continuing to the present, the Iraqi government could not respond as it should have been, <laughs> responded. To the pandemic itself. So it did not have the resources or the wherewithal or the will to do anything effective about the COVID pandemic. So Iraqis primarily had to fend for themselves. An alarming surge in cases since the beginning of June. The following news item from the BBC looked at the way Iraq's health system was trying to cope with the pandemic in the summer of 2020. Outside, Safa al-Mahdi is helping someone find the remains of a loved one. Before the outbreak, Safa was a taxi driver. Now, he drives bodies to the cemetery. None of the usual burial sites would accept the bodies of COVID-19 patients. So Safa drives the bodies to the desert south of the capital where a vast new city for the dead has risen from the sand. All 3,000 graves are for victims of the virus. Later that year, Al Jazeera reported on the wider social impact of COVID-19 as public schools began to reopen. The pandemic has further widened pre-existing disparities in education. Private schools catering to wealthy students have largely stuck to the academic calendar, while public schools like these stopped teaching for eight months. 
Budget cuts due to declining oil prices have made matters worse. For sure, there's been a negative effect. The pandemic has delayed school attendance, and in addition to that, the budget is basically zero. Private schools have better health measures than government schools, and also the number of students is smaller. They have better financial capabilities. Even though public schools are back in session, many parents will continue to play a big part in their children's education. Students will attend class only one day per week and have to study at home on the remaining school days. But compared to many other countries, Iraq lacks the telecommunications infrastructure to support e-learning. The education ministry says it will launch applications to facilitate online classes. But while many wait for such plans to materialize, Ahmed and Ayman, both in their final year of high school, say that's of little help. They say there will be online classes, but it won't be successful. The internet is very bad. We cannot study like this. Our only choice is to take private tutoring classes. We can't depend on the government schools. They already missed school during much of last year when classes were cancelled due to widespread anti-government protests. Now the pandemic risks shattering their hopes for university. The good universities won't admit us. Then we'll have to go to private college and pay millions of Iraqi dinars. We can't afford that. What potential would you say exists today for the kind of political action that could establish a more democratic and a more egalitarian system in Iraq? I think the current political system in Iraq is very difficult to radically transform. Most of the what that can be hoped for is that there is reform within the system itself. And this can only be done through elections that are more inclusive of the different political parties and also of including independent secular parties that have been organized in the aftermath of the protests by a number of independent protesters. They view themselves as independents. Now, in October of 2021, uh, uh, there were Iraqi elections, and these elections took place on the basis of the reformed electoral law, which for the first time allowed Iraqis to vote as individuals, i.e. until then, most Iraqis voted through being part of the bloc, i.e. that's the only way your vote could be counted. You needed to vote for a particular party within a particular bloc. Now, the reform of the electoral law, a reform that was came as a result of the 2019 protests, allowed Iraqis to vote as individuals, irrespective, outside the, the bloc system that had been established after 2006. And so, for the first time, we see Iraqis emerging and running as independents. And so we begin to see two kinds of shifts. First of all, in the current election that took place in October, part of the protesters, a group within the protesters, decided that the only way to really affect change is to participate in the electoral system, be part of the system itself, and then gradually bring about change. Others of the protest movement, which continue to be quite 
dominant, said, no, the only way we can do this is through revolution. We have to overthrow the system altogether. Anyway, but these, this group uh, of independents won close to 20 to 30 seats. We're not sure of all of them, uh, of their allegiances, but they constituted themselves into three parties, one of which won 20 seats in this election. It's not a large number, but it's a number that, that can be effective if it forms itself, if it you know has one particular agenda and it allies itself with particular uh, forces that exist. I mean, particular parties on particular issues that they want to see accomplished. The other thing that is, you know, might be cause for hope is that once you have one individual, one vote, you might see the splintering uh, within existing parties as members within this political elite group branch off and decide to develop their own political agendas and political programs and try to attract different constituencies than the regular party. So we have this fragmentation that might allow for the movement from coalition building between very limited blocks to a wider and more dispersed party politics that allows for more coordination and uh, coalition building among groups around certain agendas. The second thing that happened in these elections is that the Sadrists won a large seat. And the Sadrists, as, as I had said before, had been able to navigate uh, this sort of space between government and popular politics in ways that have allowed them to survive and flourish, but also leaves them with tremendous ability to forge some sort of change within at least Iraqi Shia politics. And they've always tried to build coalitions with Sunnis as they did they attempted to do in this past election, they forged coalition with Sunni parties and with the Kurds. Iraqis marched to parliament tonight, pulling down cement blast walls at the gate of Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone. At the end of July this year, supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr stormed the Iraqi parliament to oppose the selection of a new prime minister, as Channel 4 reported. Iraq hasn't had a head of state for 290 days. Many are fed up. There's no cabinet, no budget, no politicians, just protesters in the briefing room. And live streaming of tonight's parliamentary proceedings. They're chanting against the selection of a nominee for prime minister by Iran-backed parties, Mohammed al-Sadani. He would lead a coalition led by Iran-backed Shiite parties and their allies. Mostly followers of the popular Shia leader, Muqtada al-Sadr, he has the power to mobilize the masses. His political rivals have probably heard the message. But there are within electoral politics 
really quite a bit of number of pitfalls for the newcomers, those who won as independents, they have no experience and they have to maneuver to try to form a united front. For the Sadrists themselves, they are an unstable ally for for that can forge change. For example, in an attempt to forge change in this electoral political situation, i.e. after the elections, after they won, after they tried to form a coalition with other groups, they said, you know, we're going to be a majority. If we're going to be a majority, we can then sideline the old Shia blocks and effect some meaningful change to the situation of the Sunnis, to uh, work more with the Kurds, create a different landscape that can co-opt some of the demands of the protesters and and reform. This apparently was not to be because the coalition they tried to build with both Kurds and Sunni parties fell fell apart. So on June 12th, they withdrew completely from the government removed all the parliamentarians that had been elected to it, and leaving the door for traditional Shia parties to come in that in all likelihood will do business as usual. But the question of business as usual is not viable in the long run. The Iraqi state is more or less bankrupt. The, to institute uh, reforms, IMF reforms, there needs to be further privatization. But since these parties built their strength on their ability to dispense offices and positions and government appointments, whether in, in, in the government ministries or in institutions of the, of the government, this is not going to be viable. They'll, they cannot do this continuing as as they are on you know the way they're operating and the way they're devastating the the Iraqi economy and the population so the future is unclear what is unclear is that whatever change is going to happen has to be incremental in the current situation i am not sure and these parties are all militarized so if there is change. What it will lead to is the further fragmentation of Iraq, the basically more more violence uh, in Iraq, and this was was going to be inter inter Shi'i violence. As it is, the Shi'i blocks are already divided, and once militias are deployed to protect their turf, the situation might not be very promising. So I think the options for protesters are not going to be revolutionary, but they're going to have to work within the system as as it exists with regular protests along certain issues and maybe continuous change in governments. It's an unstable system of government that begs to be a legitimate system of government. Many thanks to Dina Curry for that account of Iraq's history since the occupation. You can find our essay about Iraq on the Catalyst website 